Three, three, two, two, one. It's time for the show. Action. You're listening to the It's My Time podcast, a recording of the experiences, past and present, of everyday people. And now, here's your host, the one and only Asher. Asher Chua. I think you were the first person that kind of highlighted that for me because I, I noticed, um, I, I want to say we spoke in 2013, which was my senior year of college. So mm-hmm. I was looking to do something different in order mm-hmm. to get a full-time job because what I was doing co-oping for three semesters and like back to back to back, it just didn't seem to work out in my favor and the career mm-hmm. affairs weren't going the way I, I wanted them to go. So mm-hmm. it was like, something's not right. I, I got to change my approach. Mm-hmm. And um, I believe I received your information through a mutual friend. It was um, Mrs. Uh, Graby. Oh, Nancy, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Nancy Graby. Because I, I went to college with her son at uh, Southern Poly before mm-hmm. now Kennesaw. And then we just stayed in touch. And I just started reaching out to people asking for help. And he's like, yeah, um, my mom knows somebody. And then she gave me your information and we mm-hmm. met up. Thank you. I'm honored. I'm honored that you're having me on. And uh, thank you for <laughs> thanking me and... <laughs> Um, you know, I, I don't even remember what I said to you when and what struck you, or I know you referenced sort of that 80% of the jobs are not in the, you know, the, are in the hidden job market. I right, think. right. That's great. <clears throat> That's super encouraging to hear. I mean, I'm sure you have, and, and increasingly as you get older, will more and more just you say things to people, <clears throat> you don't know if it's falling on deaf ears or... <laughs> You have no idea what they're going to do with it. To have people come back later and say, wow, you said such and such. I took that to heart. I put it into practice and here's how it turned out for me is uh, you just don't realize the lives you touch. And so it's, it's deeply encouraging that, uh, that I said something that helped you and that you want. It's kind of like the, the 99, you know, (laughs) go off and don't turn around and thank you. But the one who does, and you're like, wow. That, that's that's really special. So thank you. That's a great point. Uh, if I may ask you this question, who who do you say you are? <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> Take your time with it. Well, interestingly, um, I am. I have always been a relatively introspective person, <clears throat> and uh, over the last year have been to a therapist, um, which has been deeply encouraging, just trying to sort out some things from my past. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, really helpful. And I have, as of late, really been studying the Enneagram, if you're familiar with the Enneagram at all. No, what's that? It's a hot topic right now. It's actually an ancient, ancient tool uh, which highlights nine different personality types. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and I use a lot of personality type instruments in my job at work. Gotcha. But I use much simpler things like DISC. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, people are familiar with DISC or Myers-Briggs, mm-hmm. which a lot of people are familiar with their MBTI style, four-letter style. Mm-hmm. And all that, but um, according to the Enneagram, uh, which I'm just now beginning to be get, become more acquainted with, I am a person, uh, and some of this is not new to me at all, and some right. of it brand new to me, but I, it rings true. I'm an interesting mix of uh, a very people oriented person and being someone who is 
both very extroverted and loves to adventure and have fun and get out there and be, you know, I don't, like we went to Ireland a few years ago, and, mm-hmm. uh, which my heritage comes from Ireland for 500 years. Awesome. And when we were over there, my last name is Dylan, and there were, there was Dylan this, Dylan that, everywhere. Mm-hmm. And um, my, the people of Ireland were so warm and so friendly. And I and annoyed both my wife and the couple <laughs> we were there with because they just felt like I didn't know a stranger and would talk to everybody. Um, and I felt that way, especially over there. They were like that too. As a, as a culture, they were very warm and friendly and wanted to yeah. sort of engage with you. Gotcha. So I'm a, I'm a mix of that mm-hmm. and also someone who's always sort of thinking deeply about my motivation, other people's motivation, what's below the surface. Right. I've engaged recently in a more disciplined daily meditation practice of really just trying to clear my mind and um, kind of just get in touch with God. And I believe that knowing God and knowing yourself more yeah. go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, me, like all of us, uh, I'm an interesting mix of contradictions and nuances <laughs> and stuff. It's 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 a very hard question to answer, but at a high level, I guess that's how I would respond to that. Gotcha. That's a that's a great response. And and what's funny is that um, I've, I've been studying the disc as well. I, I saw a therapist for the first time last year, and kind of going through that. Um, Dick. I don't know if you say digging up the past, but maybe like learning how to deal with the past in a healthier manner where a lot of things that I may not have wanted to confront, I'm confronting it in a better way. And mm-hmm. like having studied the disc a little bit before I took it last year, I want to say really for the first time, because whenever I started my first full-time job out of college, I like they gave us the disc, but they didn't break it down the way it was broken down to me recently. And I think what mm-hmm. they did was take the disc and Myers-Briggs and they kind of put them together mm-hmm. and um, I'm going to go up next weekend to Lansing, Michigan to be coached and trained to become somebody that can facilitate giving the DISC assessment to somebody and being able to explain to them like what they are or how their personality kind of shakes out looking at the four letters, the D-I-C, D-I-S-E. And for myself, I fall in the latter category with the S and the C being somebody that's more supportive role, very Mm-hmm. Um, structure oriented and like you said like yourself someone that's very like a deep thinker you want to know the question behind questions that people ask or you try to ask the questions or answer the questions that aren't asked whenever you're communicating with people so it's mm-hmm. it's good to, to be in uh that like-mindedness yeah so I'm a certified DISC facilitator, and we use it at Ronstadt, where I work, in leadership training all the time. Mm. My coaching, I often will use DISC with people, have them take the assessment, and we'll talk about that. And if you think of them, you know, in the upper left, if I were to do this backwards, yeah. in the upper left, you have a D. In the upper right, you have I. Right. Two styles are uh, very active. They're very much make it happen, very sort of take action and ask questions later. Sometimes they ask for forgiveness, not permit permission, yeah. right? On the right, you have the I up here in the upper right. And then the lower right, you have the S. Mm-hmm. And so those styles are people oriented. Yeah. So they... Um, 
uh, are all about the connection, the relationship. Um, they can be perceived as being unconcerned about results. Mm. It's not that they don't care about results. It's just that they're more oriented towards the people and the relationship. Right. On the bottom, the opposite of the top, you have the S on the bottom right and the C on the bottom left. Yep. Both of them, as you just alluded to, are responsive instead of active. So you got the D, the I, active, yep. the C and the S, responsive, and they're much more oriented to not taking action but stepping back first and understanding their environment. They would be like, how in the world can you take action? We don't even know what we're de- dealing with here. Right, right. So they're more likely to ask for permission and forgiveness and then on the right, you have tasks. You have the D in the upper left and the C on the lower left. Mm-hmm. And they're task-oriented, the opposite of the I and the S. And so they can be perceived as being unconcerned about people. Gotcha. So when you understand those outer line things, the task orientation for the D and the C on the right, on the left, the people orientation for the I and the S on the right, mm-hmm. and they're different. And then you also mix in the D and the I both being active right. versus the C and the S being responsive. Uh, it really helps you understand each of the styles and the potential conflict because you have the D and the S opposite. Right, right. One's active and and task-oriented and one's responsive and Mm people-oriented, or the I, who's people-oriented and active, being the opposite of the C, who's task-oriented and responsive. And when you end up, what you notice is a lot of times when people are, their significant other is the opposite style. Right, right. It's the whole opposites attract idea. And what's funny about that is um, the mastermind group that I joined through um, Eric Thomas and Breathe University, they've really um, been pushing it as a way to help people understand who they are on like a personal level and to help mm-hmm. them interact not only in business, but in relationships and in anything that they do. They kind of draw a lot of um, entrepreneurs. So they encourage a lot of entre- entrepreneurs to say, what you're doing is great, but one, you need to narrow your focus. And two, you need to start to build the team around yourself so then that way you operate in your strengths but your weaknesses or your uh, undeveloped strengths as people may say you find people that are able to do that and you basically create a vision that encourages them to help you with your mission so that you're not somebody that's um, dominant like you were saying and task oriented where you just this needs to get done but it's like you you have to learn how to relate to people a little bit but if you can't do that like let somebody else come beside you that can deal with the people and you deal with the task and maybe when they're mm-hmm. having like a group meeting they say okay you stay out there because you're too mean for for a minute <laughs> but seeing them do that and um They've even taken it to a like a school level where he wrote a book recently and basically helping children to kind of understand like what their quote unquote superpower is. Mm-hmm. And he called the book, um, You Ain't the Boss of Me, saying that like most most kids or I guess most humans kind of respond like that. It's like, I don't necessarily want to boss you, but I don't want to be boss and told what to do. But then it's, Mm -hmm. if you understand what you're naturally gifted at, then Mm -hmm. you can better understand like, okay, like this is what I'm doing. And then if somebody's telling me to do something, they're not 
like they can either speak to me in a better way or I can learn how to receive the information a little bit better. So I just thought that that was something cool because the first time I heard about the disc, it, it didn't seem like it was encouraged for people that were before 18 or 21 years old because it's like your brain isn't fully developed yet. But um, I guess as different people are working on this, they probably realize that people are already naturally inclined to certain um, certain behaviors just based on where they grow up, like the environment they're in and things like that. And I think somebody broke it down to like a percentage that each part of the population kind of falls under due to different studies. Yeah, <clears throat> I've always heard that uh, your disc style, behavioral style, is pretty much set by the time you're six. Mm, right, right, yeah. <clears throat> Even though you're going to continue to grow and develop and be influenced by things, your basic style and what your uh, what your understanding of what the way you should be and you, it's you know the nature nurture the nature what you really are genetically and all that the nurture what you become as a result of your parents your coaches your right. teachers, all those influences really pretty much going to continue to influence you, but your basic style is set pretty early. Mm -hmm. And we may think that, you know, 25% of the population is each, you know, one in each quadrant, but it doesn't yeah. come that way at all. Right, right. At all. I think it's like 15 or something for the Ds and then like 20 something for Is. Yeah. S and I think maybe either the S's or the C's are like the majority, like percent or something like that. Yeah, nineteen percent are high D. Twenty-seven mm. percent are high I. You know, so that rolls up to like forty-six percent are active oriented. Right, right. Uh, on the bottom, fourteen percent are high C. On the bottom left, that's mm. low, that's the smallest percentage. Right, and by far the biggest percentage is the S's, and they make up forty percent. So that's fifty-four. percent Wow. are responsive, more step back, study, you know, first. So uh, it, there's all kinds of implications to that. Right. I tell people there's a disproportionate number of people in leadership that are high D. Mm -hmm. And I tell people who are high Ds, okay, yeah, it's great that you're a leader. Be careful though, because statistically speaking, you're only 27% of the population, mm -hmm. which means that what, 73% of the population is not a high D. And if you add up the I's and the S's, they make up 67%. Mm. Um, yeah, 67%. In other words, two thirds of the population are people oriented. Right, right. Task oriented like the D is. So. Right. And I guess that, that makes more sense. And that, that goes to the point of why, I mean, somebody came up with this assessment to say, here's the demographics of people that you deal with. And also like how to better like communicate with people so that if you're in the, you said either if you're in the smaller percentage, like say less than 30% and you're trying to talk to 70% of the world, you have to speak differently. Otherwise, you're mm -hmm. only going to be able to talk to people like yourself. And mm -hmm. then if you can't reach 70% of the world, that's like a huge market share or huge opportunities mm -hmm. and things like that. So then it would just be kind of stuck. And what's funny is that with Black Friday sales and everything coming up, different people have um, like programs and things that they do. And I think the group that works with Eric Thomas, they had a presentation yesterday. I missed it, but I was able to get the, um, the, the PDF slides from it. And the main thing that they do is branding, like personal branding. And what they explained was the same concept and saying that whenever you're branding, you've got to be able to talk to those different groups because otherwise, if you just talk to like your soul group, then that's only like a short term. Yep. Yeah, I mean, this is huge, right? And uh, I do a ton of disc training in my 
uh, day job. And one of the main things I really try to get people to do is, is get to a point where they can make an educated guess at someone's style right. so that they can then adjust their communication style, which makes you much better able to connect with people, much better able to influence people mm. if you sort of speak their language. Right. So yeah, there's all kinds of advantages to it. It's a it's an ancient idea. Actually, the Babylonians initially came up with this idea in like 700 plus BC. Mm-hmm. There were four primary styles of behavior. They thought it was influenced by the elements, earth, wind, fire, water. Right. Uh, and then the Greeks picked up on that and they changed it, like they changed everything to be more internal to an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and they called them the humors or the temperaments, mm-hmm. and different words for each of the styles. But then it, where we get it nowadays is from a, a, a fascinating gentleman who was an, a behavioral psychologist in the early 20th century named William Marston. Mm-hmm. He's a fascinating guy. He's also the creator of the systolic blood pressure measurement that was initially used in the lie detector test. Hmm. And he's the creator of the Wonder Woman cartoon that got made into a movie. Huh, that's yeah. pretty cool. He was quite the Renaissance man. A yeah. very interesting guy, but he framed it the way we use it now. Gotcha. And what's funny about the way we use it, I guess, like you said, people keep trying to reinvent the wheel because um, the way it was first explained to me was just the letters. But then um, the person that kind of rebranded it and put his DNA on it, um, he he basically associated it with animals. And I think that's been done before. But what he used was um, the gorilla, flamingo, chameleon, and turtle. And it kind of helped him with the language barrier that he came across in Latin America because he was trying to explain it mm-hmm. the way um, he'd been um, training other people on it, but it just wasn't coming across. But it was like, mm-hmm. with the gorilla, people were able to identify, okay, this is like something, someone powerful, domineering, like mm-hmm. kind of demanding, driving. And then with the flamingo, they're like, okay, they're always in packs. They're always social creatures. They're um, very, they're very lively. And then the mm-hmm. chameleon, they kind of oh, fade into the background. Like they, they always match their surroundings and mm-hmm. they, um, it really speaks to that like support type system, people oriented, like you were saying. And then the turtles, they may be super slow, but they're always precise, always accurate. Mm-hmm. You never see a turtle as roadkill, but they get to where they're going. Mm. <laughs> yeah. The, the thing is, disc was never copywritten. And so it's, it's in the public domain. Right. So see a ton of different companies doing stuff with disc and branding it their own way. I've seen one company that took that same idea, but they used all birds. Mm. So the D was a bald eagle, the I was a parrot, the S was a a dove, and the C was an owl. Mm. Same idea, you know. Right, right. But you're speaking to those same qualities, like you were saying. Yeah, that's cool. It is fascinating stuff. Like how? When did you come across this, and like what what kind of drew you to the the disc and and that this type of training? I think I probably first came across this. Um, well, I know I know exactly when I first came across it. I was living in Massachusetts and trying to avoid the sun. Uh, no, you're good. I was li- living in Massachusetts and <clears throat> I uh, was in sales and I was selling to a company uh, out in Framingham, just west of Boston. Mm-hmm. And I into this company called the Cleaver Company mm-hmm. and so started finding out what they did. Turns out John Cleaver was a sort of disciple 
of William Marston's. Mm. Um, and he started this company, the Cleaver Company. And, you know, they developed all these tools um, after Marston passed away and, and stuff um, and did what a lot of companies now are doing too. That's where I first ran into it. And at that time, I was fascinated with anything that could help me better understand myself and other people. That's right. been a, an overarching passion my whole life is better understanding myself and better understanding other people. Like I'm fascinated with emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. work of Daniel Goleman. He's one of the thought leaders in emotional intelligence. And yeah. say that kind of leads into the Enneagram and all this stuff too. So. Gotcha. That makes sense. I, I, I think I have that book. I need to read it, but making it my, I'm making my way around to it just one at a time and actually taking these books that are action items like and applying the action and not just reading it to say I read the book. There's so much to be read and learned out there. It's intimidating. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so then you, so you were introduced to it there. So like, did you, did you interact with it at that point or did you um, yeah. kind of leave it and come back to it later? No, I interacted with it then. I took the disc assessment. I was really interested. They had at that time for that company, and I don't know, it, many companies nowadays won't touch this topic mm-hmm. because when I be guilty of using disc as a hiring tool, mm. then, you know, end up being sued for it being discrimination or something. Right, right. And um, because they're trying to fit the right pieces where they need it versus just having it be free and open. Yeah. And so, um, but they had what they called the constellation. It was disc, it was different disc patterns Mm -hmm. of careers. And so I was already fascinated with people's careers and I had gotten out of the full-time ministry in 94. Uh, I'd been out of the full-time ministry for about four years at that point. But when I was in the ministry. You were, you were a minister? Mm-hmm. Okay. I had worked in the full-time ministry for about eight years. Okay. Right out of college. And uh, that's what took my wife and I from Colorado, where I'm originally from, mm-hmm. to Massachusetts. And then we worked, I worked for a year and a half in the full-time ministry in Colorado, gotcha. Massachusetts. I was not in the ministry for a year and a half, but then we got married. And then I went into the full-time ministry and we were together in the full-time ministry for six and a half more years. So I had gotten out of the full-time ministry and, you know, was trying to figure out what am I, what should I do for a career? What am I good at? What am I interested in? So anything um, dealing with uh, understanding, like I said, myself and other people and careers and all that was fascinating to me. And so when I, and I was helping a lot of other people, Mm -hmm. the things I do now, besides my working in leadership training for a large staffing company, I have my own coaching business and I do uh, a lot of career coaching and life coaching. Mm -hmm. So, so, um, yeah, so I'll use all kinds of assessments and stuff to try to help people with with their careers. And yeah. so it really resonated with me when I ran into the Cleaver Company and they had this career constellation based off of your DISC style and all that. I've probably taken the DISC assessment maybe eight or nine different times in my life. Mm-hmm. And it has virtually turned out to be the same pattern pretty much every time. Gotcha. Has it has it changed much? Um, I know they say it... For some people, it has a tendency to change slightly around major life events. Has that been a, a case for you? It's changed um, a little bit. I mean, I'm always a high I, mm-hmm. secondarily a high S. 
And depending on the job I was in, my eye would maybe go up a little bit more. Um, uh, everything would maybe shift just a little bit, but it right. never means places. Like I never went from being a high I, and, you know, and a lower C to being a high C and a lower I. That that never happened. None of them actually changed, you know, becoming higher than the uh, any of the others right. before. But they did go up or down a little bit. Like when I was in a sales role, my D came up, as right. you can imagine, for a sales type role, you've got to be more driven. Right. Um, and when I was in a training role, which I'm in now, my D would drop down a little bit and my S would go up a little bit, which makes sense. Right. It's a great style for training and coaching and that kind of stuff. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. The, uh, that's, that's cool because what, what makes sense, because what I've seen a lot of people do is become coaches. And that's what I'm hoping to do next weekend, at least start on that path to become a coach. Because I like similar to you, I, I want to know so much more about myself and in turn be able to help people around me or at least know how to navigate with people around me. Because a lot of times I've found myself in work situations where I may be hitting my head against the wall or just frustrated with a certain situation because I don't understand with somebody that's so demanding. I'm just like, but what about what about the people? It's like, well, they got to worry about themselves. Like, this is what we need to get done. Because if you don't get this done, the money doesn't come through. And if the money doesn't come through, like nobody's working. But mm-hmm. like being able to kind of see those things and understand, okay, in business, you have to be more driving because like at the end of the day, you need results. Like you can have have, um, I think someone said this recently where it's like, if you're in ministry and you want to go to business, you, you kind of have to separate the two. It's like you can still do ministry, but you can't necessarily do ministry and business at the same time because sometimes like your tendencies in ministry where you want to take care of people may have you overlook some of the like standards you need to complete in order to get um, like a conversion factor. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if I said that right. Like in order for you to, to basically achieve a sale, it's like you can be nice with a person but at the end of the day if they don't necessarily cut the check then like you'll be like you can be nice with each other but at the end of the day if they go home and you go home but you didn't leave with more than you you came with necessarily not wanting to like take something from them but like they say every time that you communicate with somebody like you're either selling or you're being sold to so if you don't win mm-hmm. out then you don't necessarily leave with with what you intended to in that business type environment where the end goal is to get a sale yeah yeah for sure i've worked in the nonprofit world for the church mm-hmm. I'm the for-profit world you know uh, in businesses and I've worked in academia as well and they're all very different right you got different agendas for all of those and they value different things mm-hmm. and you don't <clears throat> adopt to or adapt to those differing values yeah you in a nonprofit world if you have a business mindset you're yeah you're tr- you're trying to uh, jam or push something through mm-hmm. when end of for the nonprofit may be ultimately taking care of people. Right. Uh, if you come into uh, academia where the agenda might very well be the publishing of um, books and reports and you know papers or the education of people depending on the institution, mm-hmm. but it's not on making money right. like in the business world. And it's not on helping people in the same way that a nonprofit is. Mm-hmm. Just to different. And I, again, having worked in all three of those and having to shift my mind going from one to the other uh, I, is is difficult. It's challenging. And uh, 
I thought at one point I really wanted to work in an academic environment. Mm-hmm. After years of working at Georgia Tech, I realized it's a great oh, that's, institution. That's, I, I forgot that's how we know each other too. Yeah. I, I love the institution. I respect it a lot. And uh, it's a great institution, but I realized I can't work in academia. It's, yeah. I, just, I, don't, I don't get it. I had too much of a business sort of mindset. Right. Well, what's funny about that is that um, a lot of people would say, or maybe I, I just listened to a lot of, I, I listened to a podcast from Malcolm Gladwell. He's um, podcast on revisionist history and he was kind of talking about the money that goes into academia especially when you talk about colleges and understanding like how much like how much emphasis goes into like a big um, Ivy League school versus like a community college and just seeing Mm -hmm. like okay a lot of money it seems like it goes into buying a new building or kind of like dressing it up and then you have kids that will go in and I know the big topic has been recently like people just kind of get these loans and like you seem to be paying for a lot of things. You're either paying for the experience or you're paying for this versus going somewhere that may not look so nice, but you get a similar experience or even a better experience. Like mm-hmm. I, like my thoughts on that were, I see his point because I went to Southern Poly first for my first three years mm-hmm. and then I transferred to Georgia Tech. And by doing that, I was able to save a lot of money up front and mm-hmm. kind of get that close knit environment because I, I moved from a small town to a little bit bigger town. Mm-hmm. And it just wasn't like a doggy dog eat world like tech mm-hmm. for freshmen coming in. And mm-hmm. it's just, like, oh my God, like you got, um, what do they call them? Classes that are supposed to basically separate out the week. It's like, if you're not here mm-hmm. for this, then that's mm-hmm. too bad. And yep. I guess something about that doesn't necessarily sit right with me. And it might be like we were talking about, like that people oriented where you're like, okay, you're you're supposed to be in this environment to learn. You're supposed to be in this environment to like get your money's worth. But a lot of times it seems like um, you can't meet with the professor because they're traveling because they've got to get publication. So got to do because the money's got to come into the school. Otherwise, what they're doing isn't making sense. And I was like, okay, that, that makes sense. Like you, you have to have money coming into the school. And if nobody's paying the bills, then the lights don't stay on. Mm-hmm. But um, in other cases, I was just like, I don't know if necessarily this is the best use of the money, but that's, mm-hmm. that's why you have boards and people on faculty and different things like that. And that's a whole nother, a whole nother thing to understand. But I, I, I figured you, you've definitely seen it firsthand so you know what that's like yeah interestingly like I said at one point I thought about trying to work in academia um, and I approached somebody who was currently working at a different institution not Georgia Tech Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but it was also a division one school very prominent um, and he told me and at that point you know I was uh, this was probably about 15 years ago maybe Mm -hmm. longer uh, he said to me, well, Greg, you know, just so you know, and he said, not a lot of people are going to tell you this. He said, but some schools are not interested in the quality of your teaching. So if you're, you would want to go and work in a university because you love teaching and people learning, yeah. depending on the institution, that may very well be not what they're interested in. Mm. They may be interested in is getting more publications, making sure that their ranking right. in US News and World Report surveys is in the top 25 and the, everything's kind of geared around that right? instead of what you're trying to do, which is just being passionate about. And I'm not saying there aren't great right, right. those places, but that's not always what the institution is most concerned about. And I, that was a, I didn't know that. 
Right. That's a big eye opener. It was. It was a big eye opener for me. Uh, you know, I just had this altruistic view of higher ed as being all about the student. And it isn't always as we right. all know. And I mean, that that's kind of the sad thing that I, I, I tend to see with a lot of educators. I have some siblings that are educators and it seems like most of them go in with the thought of like, okay, well, I, I want to pass on to people what I know, like what I've learned. I want to be able to bring out the next generation like I've had great teachers that brought me up. Mm-hmm. And for me, for the longest time, I, it's funny, I got th- my nickname as a child was teacher. And mm-hmm. I guess I was always telling people stuff, but I always kind of like secretly resented it because I was like, I don't know if I have anything to teach people necessarily, but I was always appreciative of my teachers. And anytime um, I was in class, I did my best to be respectful. Like I'd say overall, I had from elementary school through college, I can maybe count three professors that were not good professors for what I consider mm-hmm. and what other people may consider. And I was just like, the reason I saw they weren't good was because they were more focused on themselves. Mm-hmm. Like one professor that um, within the first year of her being there, it was like, she just talked about, spent maybe 30 minutes talking about her experiences at the last school that she was at and then trying to teach the last 15 minutes in like an hour and a half class. And people were like, I've got to run. I've got kids. I've got this. I've got that. And it's like, oh, no, no, no. You don't, you don't leave until I dismiss you. It's like, this isn't high school. Like we're not, we're not going by the bell. It's like, you have a certain amount of time to teach people pay for that certain amount of time. And you can't just disrespect people's time like that. And I don't think Mm -hmm. like in these cases, it didn't seem like it was an institution thing, but just Mm -hmm. kind of seeing that the difference where you have somebody very passionate, like a very good English teacher. I had my first year and then I had him again for world literature, just the amount of effort that he put into teaching and what he taught us about language. And whenever you, you have a discussion, the point isn't necessarily to win. It's just to have the discussion. Like they say, it's okay to have opposite views and there's not, there doesn't always need to be a winner and a loser. And it seems like a lot of times I'm seeing people now are just like polarized and they're like, well, like if you're not with me, you're against me. Like we're on this team. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not the only, like there's not one way to do everything. Well, yeah, we live in a very polarized world, <clears throat> and it's uh, many people are all too happy to just take sides. Yeah. Unfortunately, there aren't enough people, or, or at least if they're there, they're often quiet, who right. can take the bigger view uh, and allow people to have differing opinions. Mm-hmm. Even in my lifetime, I've really seen politics. Uh, you know, I think what Ellen DeGeneres did recently is a great example. I don't know if you knew this, but not what what was that? She had her. She was in some public place. I forget what it was, and a picture was taken of her uh, in at some event, and uh, she was with George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. And you know, obviously, Ellen DeGeneres is gay and very liberal in her thinking. Mm-hmm. And they show her sitting there talking with uh, George W. Bush, and evidently they're they're not close friends, but they yeah. they have a relationship. And somebody she caught a lot of flack for that right. because he is so polarizing as a very, you know, conservative right, right. person. Here she is. And she came on her show basically and pretty much said, look, we should and, and we can and we should have relationships with people who are very different from us. 
Right. We don't agree about everything, but that doesn't mean we can't still, you know, enjoy each other, learn from each other and all of that. And I just thought that was such a needed and a beautiful statement. Uh, and um, I think we need a lot more of that. I think we need people who are open-minded enough and big enough people. Mm-hmm. They can value people who are polar opposites of them and right. be still about it and respectful and have an open dialogue instead of just barricading themselves behind their stances and right, right. polarize themselves and other people. It's just, I think it's dehumanizing. I think oh, you know, we want to make the world black and white. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, I think a major mistake that really makes people shallower, smaller, less than they were created to be as human beings. That's a great point. It, it's funny because I I want to say it goes back to the point of the new assessment you were, you were talking about because I, I came across this um, clinical psychologist named Jordan Peterson from um, watching Joe Rogan's podcast. And basically he had him on multiple times talking about um, incidents in the news or um, just different things coming up where people didn't understand or they just kept misquoting him and misunderstanding what it was that he was trying to say. And it I just found it more and more interesting to hear somebody that's like a practicing psychologist as well as a professor that goes into the detail to explain what it is that he means and to be very, like very, very intentional about being careful with his words. But with him being careful and compassionate with his words, like he went the approach of like, like you said, being bold and saying like, no, you you cannot misquote me. Like, here's exactly what I'm saying. And it's Mm -hmm. funny that he had an interview with someone I think is maybe in, in England and there's maybe 22 times in a 30 or a 30 minute interview it may have been like an hour, but they cut it down to like 20 minutes Mm -hmm. for TV. And within that period of time, every two to five minutes, he says something. And then the reporter turns it around and says, well, you're saying this. And then like, as soon as he's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. It's like, they just keep getting more and more and more aggressive, just trying to like push a narrative. And it's just like, this is becoming very uncomfortable. You're being very um, unreasonable. And just kind of being able to see something like that. It's like, okay, like there's not, there's still nuance in the world and it's it's so easy like you said to pick a side and just be like okay I'm all this but it's like well what what made you decide that was it just something somebody told you or did you go like research it yourself did you go figure out like what really pleases you not necessarily what makes you tick because it's like Mm -hmm. even the way we use our language it's like okay like what excites you what makes you mad what makes you this it's just like you, you just go from one extreme to the other and it's like what what about all of this in between it's it's Kind of like that's that's what life is. And of course you're gonna have the bad things that happen and you're questioning like, oh why? Like why does this happen to me? But then you kind of have to realize, hey, it happens to everybody, but it's only relevant once it happens to you. And then you're kind of thinking, oh, okay. But if you're able to experience life in a way and kind of take that with a positive experience, I've seen people more times than not kind of become more empathetic towards other people because they're like, okay, like you've Mm -hmm. lost someone, I've lost Mm -hmm. someone before. Now I can kind of put my arm around you and help Mm -hmm. you along that way rather than just be like, oh, that's not my problem. Just get over it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, a lot of the media, whether it's, you know, TV or blog posts or Mm -hmm. whatever, people are trying to get more viewers, they're trying to get more readers. And so they want to sensationalize stuff in order to get more 
followership. Right. And so they will sacrifice the truth and take out the nuances in order to make it sell better. Right. Right. Basically. And, um, and again, it's an unfortunate thing, you know, and I think part of that that makes me sad is I see a lot of trend. I think that increasingly it seems to me, I could be off of course, but that we live in a world that is running at very high speed. Mm -hmm. And what, what can be the cost of that is that our relationships with people increasingly become more transactional. Mm. And so in, I don't have the time to really understand you, yeah. or at least I'm not going to take the time to really understand you because I got to move on to these other things. Right. It means I have to relegate my interactions with you to be very two dimensional. Right. Right. And so I'm going to paint you this or paint you that so that I could sort of put you in a box and say you're this way and not have to deal with contradictions and nuance and reality and all that sort of stuff. And again, I think it dehumanizes. Yeah, yeah. We've done that with history. It's what we see when we read or hear fake news. Uh, It's, you know, we don't have time to really uh, take into account, again, the, the nuances. And one of my favorite quotes is a quote by Stephen Covey. Mm. Uh, we know who Stephen Covey is, and a lot of younger people say no. <laughs> so Stephen, Stephen Covey wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, yep. probably one of the top 10 best-selling business books in the 20th century. Now, Stephen Covey passed away probably seven, eight years ago, so he's not alive anymore, but great, great book. Um, but yep. one of his things he said, which I love, is, He said, with people, slow is fast and fast is slow. Mm. I don't know all of what that means, of course. I think a big part of what it means is when we try to go fast and work efficiently with people, Mm -hmm. uh, we, we can do it in a way, but we can, in our mind, do a check mark. Okay, I told them this, or, yeah. you know, uh, I got them on board with that because, and we did it fast. And so in our mind, yep, did it. But the reality was <clears throat> it didn't really, they don't really understand. They weren't really trained. They didn't really buy in. So in your mind, the person doing the communicating and training or whatever, you think it went fast. Right. But what you're going to discover is that everything bogs down and you're going to have to go back and do it again because they didn't really understand, didn't really buy in, didn't really get trained. And so that fastness is actually slowing things down. And the opposite of that is when we, and this is counterintuitive, mm-hmm. when instead in interacting with people, when we slow down, mm-hmm. think, and this is what I think the whole, you know, Aesop's fable of the tortoise and the hare is all about. Right. When instead we slow down when we're interacting with people and we counterintuitively take the time. And sometimes we don't think we have the time to take, yeah. but make sure someone really understands. And we make sure that someone really is trained or really does give their buy-in taking all that time up front but in the long run it speeds things up right because they really are on board now yeah and you don't have all those troubles down the road and i and but again that's a very non-transactional approach Um, right but i mean that that makes perfect sense because 
what I've seen a lot. I've, I've spent more time listening to podcasts and I've listened to a lot of Joe Rogan because he just has different, a variety of different guests. And he had a, a news reporter on there. Yeah, I think that's the proper term. He had a reporter on there and basically they were talking about how the news has shifted to get instant gratification in order to bring money in because it's like the stories that take time. It's like somebody could go out for months and months and then they put out a hit piece, but it's like, oh, we didn't get a thousand likes or a million likes or like the views, the views, the views. And every time I hear that, mm-hmm. I'm just like, that's so annoying because everything, like you said, has become transactional. But mm-hmm. when you have a sit down conversation like this and you talk with somebody long term, you have the time to navigate the conversation and express mm-hmm. things to the best of your ability. And then that way, if somebody takes the time to listen to it, they can better articulate what you may have meant. And then they can even have a conversation with you afterwards to say, okay, like, I really like what you said here because you had a chance to explain it and mm-hmm. he had a lot of he's had a lot of um i think political candidates on there um like bernie sanders andrew yang uh tulsi gabbard and just different people mm-hmm. and what they've appreciated about it it's like okay you're giving me two hours to three hours to just come on here and speak about things that are current in the news things that i value things that i believe for policies and things like that it's like that's so much better than having a two minute, five minute rebuttal or however they set up that thing because I'm like, I don't even remember the last time I saw one of those where it was like, this just doesn't make any sense. Like you want everything to be fast, 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 fast. Mm-hmm. It's like, that might be okay for a child, but like in a way it's like we become children again, like not mm-hmm. wanting to take the time. It's like, okay, you've got to rush to do this, rush to do that. And technology has become a beautiful thing, but at the same time, it's almost become a, a curse because it's like a mm-hmm. blessing too soon for some or for many. Yeah, it unfortunately lends itself to that transactional mindset where we just live by, we get our truth in sound bites. Right. And it just, it can very insidiously push us towards that black and white transactional way of thinking where all we're doing is telling. We don't take the time to listen and understand. Right. And that's nuances is by really listening and understanding. And it's going to come back to bite us. I think it already is coming back to bite us in a lot of ways. Hmm. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if down the road, you know, this generation or whatever uh, really ends up rebelling against that yeah. and forces us to slow down some more because they see the wisdom in it. Right. But that's, now, that's we're certainly caught in that rat race. Yeah. And I mean, that that seems to be a thing that's like, they say history repeats itself and there's nothing new under the sun. So it seems like the people that get it or the people that are kind of remembered or that have a meaningful life to them are the ones that take the time to study history and kind of see like, okay, maybe this is repeated. So instead of me doing this again, like I'll be 30 next year and now I'm taking the time to kind of go through Jordan Peterson's um, like self-authoring program where he looks at, um, helps you look at um, your future, what you want to do in the next six months to one year to two years. And you map it out in the sense of like, okay, what do you value? And you you kind of go through this process of elimination where you list like 30 things, you cut it down to maybe 10, five, three, and then you go to another category and you cut it down. And then once you list out eight goals, you have to justify your goals, why you set them. It's like, okay, is this really something that's going to matter if like everything burns and like, is that something you're still going to be able to maintain? Is it that important to you? Like, do you have a strong enough conviction to follow through on what you said you're going to do? And Mm -hmm. that's 
that's as far as I've made it. I need to go back and continue. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that he says, it's like, you look at your future, your present and your past in order to better understand yourself. So it's like you're writing shorts um, on your life, either like a thousand words or up to a thousand words or 2000 words, just saying like, okay, this is remember it like a bad time in your life or remember something that just didn't sit right with you. It's like, okay, now we dig into that. And they ask like psychological questions on um, the website or within the program. And then it's able to spit it out to you in like a PDF format to where you can kind of look at it and be like, oh, okay, this is this is where I'm at and here's where I want to go. And I've already laid out the steps to do it. And I just came across that because of listening to them talk on the podcast and grabbing his book. I think it's um, 12 Rules for Life. And just going back to that nuance where you have the 12 rules that you give at the title, but then you have this big story or fable that explains and really gets into the nitty gritty. And then at the end, you kind of restate the rule again. I think the first one he was saying was just stand up with your shoulders back and your head up straight. And it's like, okay, I've, I've heard that before, but it's like, here's why. And then um, just talking about things like hierarchy and like whenever, like the way you kind of present yourself is what makes you, like how you present yourself is kind of the outcome that you tend to receive. So if you see yourself as mm-hmm. sheepish and you don't see yourself as like, okay, I need to stand up and be able to bear my burden that's personal to me. I don't need to take somebody else's weight and I don't need to make it so insurmountable, but I need to really identify what it is in my life that I can carry. And the better I'm able to do that, then I can help people around me. And I think people have said before, it's like, if you simply start by making your bed every morning, mm-hmm. you can make the world a better place. Yeah. Rather than saying, oh, I'm going to go and save the hungry kids. It's like, that kid will probably be fine for a minute, but like, take care of your life so that if you're right, with yourself, you don't go mess up somebody else's because you didn't do what you were supposed to do to take the time and like work on you first and then taking what you worked on you and mastered, then give that to somebody so that they can kind of nibble on that food and then make their own and then it kind of like spreads and multiplies. Yeah, I agree with you. And, uh, you know, I always think of the whole when you're on an airplane, right? And they say, if we should lose cabin pressure, you know, adults, please, and you're, if you're sitting next to a child, please put the oxygen mask on yourself first. And if you think about that purely, that just sounds so selfish. Like, what are you going to just let them die? Right. If you as the adult pass out, you will both die. Right. The only hope the child is going to have is if you get that oxygen mask on yourself first Mm. and you're in your right mind to help them as well. Right. And I do think that, you know, we don't want to be self-centered. We don't want our life to be just about ourselves. But I agree with your, you know, the foundational concept that you really have to kind of take, get yourself in a good place first and keep yourself in a good place. And you're going to be coming from a place where you really have uh, a lot to give and uh, doing it for the right motives and, um, you know, on and on. So, yeah, that's great. We've pretty much conquered all the world's problems here. (laughs) (laughs) If only. Oh, One one other thing I was going to ask you, I know you said you're doing um, the coaching with DISC and you you do career coaching as well as life coaching. Mm-hmm. Have you seen like a sudden shift over the, the past few years or is it has it been kind of about the same, like you have good quality people doing the same work or have you seen people kind of starting to masquerade with the title of like life coaching specifically? Uh-huh. 
So are you asking me specifically about the coaching profession, basically? Yes. Yes. I unfortunately think anybody and everybody out there will call themselves a coach. Mm. And what a lot of people don't know uh, who hire a coach and what a lot of people, not that they don't know, but they don't bother to do anything about who call themselves coaches, mm. they don't recognize that there is a whole discipline of coaching, mm. a way of going about it. Like we wouldn't think of someone, you know, calling themselves a doctor just because, you know, they've read some books, some medical books and have a pretty steady hand. Yeah. Um, and so they're going to do brain surgery. On you. Right. You, you want someone to have gone through medical school and to understand the science behind, you know, the, the human, the anatomy and what affects what and uh, the right way of going about doing all these processes in order for it to bring about the desired uh, effect. Right. And there is a whole discipline of coaching. And uh, I was going to say to you earlier when you said you'd hope to be a coach, are you familiar with the ICF? No, what's that? The International Coaching Federation. Hmm. And it's like going to take your medical boards. It's if you want to, or their bar exam, if you're a lawyer, right? It's it's the body that right. will certify you as saying, yes, you understand coaching uh, to the point where you can be a certified coach. Gotcha. Um, and I would encourage you, there's all kinds of coaching programs. Now, the IC doesn't run coaching programs. Right, right. All kinds of institutions that run coaching programs. You want to pick a coaching program that the ICF recognizes as they looked at their curriculum and have right. said, yes, this is acceptable. Gotcha. And then once you go through your coaching program, then you can apply to the ICF to get certified. And there's uh, four levels, three levels of, well, four probably, of coaches. There's an associate certified coach, ACC. There's a professional certified coach, PCC. And then there's a master certified coach, MCC. Mm. Uh, and then there's master certified mentor coaches, which are like right. coaching coaches, you know. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of a financial and a time commitment to get it. Right. But beyond the credential, the things you learn about the discipline of coaching are invaluable. Got it. That's that's a great point. And I'm glad you, you brought that up because I guess terms like coaching necessarily can be very vague because of the first time I heard coaching I was always thinking like school like high school coaches like right. those types of people but then when you talk about life coaches like a good number of people that I know that do life coaching or like speaking coaches like they're I'm sure they have their certification or they're working towards it but the first thing that I've noticed with a lot of the people that I trust is that their work speaks for themselves mm -hmm. and it, it goes before them and I think that's always something that it, it should be because because if you have somebody just claiming to be something in order to make a few bucks, it's like that's only going to last for a little while. And I mean, there may mm -hmm. be casualties along the way, unfortunately, but the people that are doing it right and navigating it like you are going through the proper channels to say, like, we have this board of certification in order to make sure that we um, we weed out like the ones that aren't right. And it's the same reason you have like a board for colleges to say, OK, this one is accredited because it's gone through mm -hmm. and met this. We're not just setting up a bureaucracy to be difficult, but we're trying to make sure right. that people have something
something that they can know, like, and trust. And, you know, the, the genesis of it, you know, whatever, back in the 1990s, I think the ICF was created. And they were very, they had a lot of foresight because they could foresee that a lot of people were going to all of a sudden jump on this coaching bandwagon, call themselves coaches, right. and the wild, wild west. And very quickly, coaching can become discredited because mm. you hire a coach and the person has no idea what they're doing. And so they don't right. bring about change and help. Right. Um, uh, an example is I know someone, not well, but I know them and I like this person, uh, but she she's a hairdresser, mm-hmm. which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But right. you know, one of the things hairdressers do is they talk with their person who's in the chair, whose hair they're cutting yeah. uh, and listen, you know, and stuff. And so evidently over time, this person decided to open a coaching business. Mm. Now, and I don't doubt her intentions and I don't doubt uh, that she has gained experience. She's probably a little bit younger than me, but not far younger than me. So she's got some life experience. All right. those things are good things. Right. But I don't think she's been through any sort of a coaching program. Gotcha. So model the model in her head of what a coach is, is anything and everything, right? right? And a lot of people will be a football coach for a high right. school and think, okay, I've coached kids on the field. I'm going to become a life coach. Yeah. Well, being football players and being a life coach are very different. Not that there's no overlap. There, right. There's right. overlap. But it's very, very different. What brings about change in people's lives. So mm. for you and for all of your listeners, if you are interested in being coached, which I highly recommend, I've been coached by a number of people and uh, it, it truly can be transformed transformational. That's the reason I do it myself. You want to find an ICF certified coach. Makes sense. And what's funny about that, a friend of mine that I just um, put the podcast out for this week, he's a barber. And we kind of talked Mm -hmm. about what his journey was to becoming a barber. He went to school to do that because he figured, hey, let me go ahead and get the proper certification to say I'm a licensed barber. Like you went through Mm -hmm. school and he was telling me that he started with maybe 20 people and then there were three or five of them that completed the program. Program. And then as he's been cutting hair, he um, he started to notice that there's more to just cutting hair. And it was it's not just you're getting a haircut, but you're getting an entire experience. And with that, he was like, okay, saw a coaching program like the one I'm going to go to come available. And he was like, okay, I'm going to go get coached by... Um, someone that's well known and he I'm sure he's ICF certified because he's coached multiple people and helped multiple people um, overcome things and really get their life together so it's like Mm -hmm. you have somebody that I I respect very well that took kind of like you said with your friend I I don't know but maybe I'd say they're similar profession but he took the different approach of saying okay I thought well enough to get certified Mm -hmm. in my profession but not only Mm -hmm. to get a barbering certification but but also he went and took a course from a groomer and he said, okay, I want to be able to provide this additional service. And people were kind of looking like, why in the world would you do that? Like, we don't do that. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. yes, clients come in now and then he can service that other thing. Like if they've got um, ingrown hairs or something, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I can do that because I went through mm-hmm. program. I got certified by somebody that's licensed in that area. And then he took it a step further to say, I communicate with people. So I want to be able mm-hmm. to better communicate with my clients so that I understand what they're saying to me. And I'm not just like, 
oh yeah bro just go do you because it's like that'd be <laughs> that'd be nice but he understood that he needed to take it to that next level and seeing him do that like time and time again I'm like okay like maybe I want to go and do that and like you mentioned now I'm going to go through the program and then also verify that it's certified and mm-hmm. check back in with the board and say okay if this is something that's going to help me personally either be able to create two careers to just say like this is something that I want to do and I'm going to follow through with it all the way and not just do partial. Yeah and I'm certainly not saying that everyone who's an ICF certified coach is going to be a great coach right? Right, right. Just like not everybody who got their went through the bar exam is a great lawyer. Everybody yeah. who passed their medical exams is a great doctor. Um, and I'm not saying it's impossible for someone who's not been ICF certified to be a great coach. You might have someone who really loves the discipline of coaching and has picked up every book and really studied and read and given their natural gifting could be not certified, but still be a great coach. That's possible for sure. So don't think again, black and white. Right, right. Exactly. But you do want to make sure that you have, you've got someone uh, who's really submitted themselves to the discipline uh, yeah. and body of knowledge in coaching. So. That's a great point. Yeah. Before you go, is there um, any way you'd like people to reach out to you by your website or just social media or anything like that? Sure, sure. Um, people can either reach me. The best way to reach me is actually just with my email address, which is Greg S. Dillon. So G-R-E-G-S as in Scott, D-I-L-L-O-N mm-hmm. at Bell South. South.net. So B-E-L-L-S-O-U-T-H dot T. That's the best way to reach me by e- is by email. My website is www.dc and T. So it's the letter D, the letter C for Dylan Coaching mm-hmm. and A-N-D-T. D-C and T dot com. Yeah. Thank you. All sir. right. You're very welcome. My pleasure. And, and again, honored to be on. And thank you for talking to me, Asher. Awesome. Thank you, sir. You're very welcome. Good to talk to you. Likewise. Always a pleasure. Mine, indeed. <laughs>